Matthew 27, verses 32 to 61, as we consider the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. The message that the Lord has given Oral Bible Church is we, we proclaim, we preach a preeminent Christ who is crucified, risen, and coming again. We read at the beginning of our service today, uh, Jesus of Nazareth entered into Jerusalem as the anticipated king of Israel. But yet we read here how he was, as it were, the king on a cross. How did he go from, from one extreme to the other? How did he go from hearing the hosannas of children to the curses of people and rulers, Israel's very rulers? How did he go from having clothes and palm branches laid out before him to having to have his cross carried, a crown of thorns on his head, to Golgotha? Seems like a completely different person, doesn't it? But it's not. It's the exact same person. How, how did this happen? The Gospels tell us what happened. Let's consider that this morning. Verses 32 to 37, we read about Jesus, the King of the Jews, how he is crucified. Look with me at verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Mark chapter 15, verse 21, tells us that Simon was the, the father of two sons that Mark and his readers knew about. We don't know much more about Simon here. But he was made to carry Jesus' cross because Jesus was physically unable to the beating that he received from the soldiers incapacitated him, physically kept him from doing this. Verse 33. When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to the, say the place of a skull, so where is Golgotha? There's two locations. The exact location ultimately is not known. Golgotha is an Aramaic word, kind of like Hebrew means place of a skull. And so some have said that it kind of looks that way. Another potential meaning might be that this is where uh, executions took place. Golgotha is not really well known to us, but the Latin word for this is, and the Latin word is Calvaria. And that sounds like what to us? Calvary. Verse 34. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This was a drink given by the soldiers to those who would be crucified. It was a drugged potion, and it had two basic purposes. Uh, but particularly from the soldiers' standpoint, it would make their job easier. Getting the condemned criminal to not be able to do much. And so just have to go along with it. But Jesus refused this. He would be fully aware, fully cognizant, entirely understanding of everything that's going to happen. He 
would not be drugged. And so, verses 35 to 37, he is crucified at Golgotha, or Calvaria, the place of the skull, the execution place outside Jerusalem. Verse 35, Then they crucified him, dividing his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We read simply this, they crucified him. The gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it doesn't go into any detail. Some read into this, and they say, because it doesn't give any detail, we shouldn't seek to understand that anyway. Well, the reason they didn't go into, de- go into detail is because everyone in the first century knew what was involved with crucifixion. Everyone at that time knew it was involved. It was the worst of the worst. It was an excruciating death where an individual's hands uh, would be uh, affixed to uh, a wooden beam, either tied or in Jesus' case, nailed. His feet would be as well. And it was a painful, excruciating death. Basically, they would die by suffocation. Having to breathe, they would have to move their knees up and down for, that, for their lungs to work. And it was not an immediate death. It would take days for the condemned to die. It was a horrible way to die. Not only horrible physically, but it was horrible to your reputation. You're on public display. Everyone is seeing what's happening to you. Human history, many have sought to ease the pain of death. Perhaps you have a loved one or someone that you know that is in the, has gone through those, those last stages of death. And the pain can be excruciating. And so they give them medicine to help with the pain. I can't say I'm thankful for that because I haven't experienced it. But this is the exact opposite. They didn't seek to alleviate pain. They sought to ratchet it up. To make it as bad as possible. It was created, crucifixion was created to increase it. But not only that, from a Jewish standpoint, for this condemned criminal to be lifted up, In the eyes of Deuteronomy 21-23, which says anyone hanged on a tree is under God's curse. This one that was lifted up is under God's curse. That's why the Jewish leaders, they didn't want Jesus to be banished from their land. Because how was Jesus being received by people? He's the king of the Jews. He's the Messiah. They didn't want Jesus to simply be a banished king. They wanted everyone to see he's cursed by God. Remember one of the first messages I preached this year was from Galatians 3.13. I think it was 3.13. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for whom? For us. And that's exactly what Jewish religious leaders wanted to happen. We read of the soldiers' actions here 
in verses 36 and 37. So let's pick up at verse 36. After they divided his garments, they sat down, verse 36, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Part of crucifixion was stripping off the condemned criminal's clothes. That is part of the humiliation. And the Romans soldiers would take that last little bit of that person's pride and possessions and make it their own. We read in verse 36, they sat down and they kept watch over him there. Not in a necessarily gruesome way, just watching him die, but also making sure no one interrupted this execution. None of his followers would come, try to bring it to a halt and save him. Verse 37, with this accusation that's written up against him, this is what would happen with crucifixion. The victim's name would be on this and his crime. And what was Jesus' crime that Pilate had written? This is the king of the Jews. You might remember from other passages, the Jews, they didn't like that. They wanted Pilate to write, no, right, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. As a mock, not only to Jesus, but the Jews themselves. We read here then, in this first part of how Jesus, the king of the Jews, is crucified. In verses 38 to 44, how he is mocked. Verse 38. Then the two robbers are crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He's mocked, verses 39 to 40, by these bystanders. They didn't believe, they did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so they said whatever they wanted to him. They said it in a sneering, mocking way. You say you're God in the flesh, right? Spitting it right at him, mocking him, showing no respect for him. Mocking even his resurrection prophecy being raised in three days. And they called him powerless. Get the picture of what's happening here. These earthly creatures are saying to the one who gave them life that he is powerless, that he's not the king, and that he is not ultimately, finally subject to death. The religious leaders mock him in verses 41 to 43. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The religious leaders here are not really speaking so much to Jesus as to the crowd that is around there watching and listening. Jesus' miracles, alleged miracles, they're fake. How do we know they're fake? They said, he can't save himself. 
See, if he was a real miracle worker, if he could really do this, he could deliver himself from that. And the Jews basically said, contrary to what Pilate said, Jesus isn't the Messiah, because the true Messiah would not be in this position. Look with me again at the beginning part of verse 42. He saved others himself. He cannot save. I'll make some important doctrinal points and application in a little bit, but we must see what is being said here. He saved others himself. He cannot save. You know what? In order for Jesus to save others, he couldn't do this. He had to die. And that is gospel truth. Your Savior stayed on the cross, not for himself, but to pay the price of your sin. Not only was Jesus mocked by bystanders and the religious leaders, but even those who were condemned with him. We read about these two in verse 38 and also in verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They're called here robbers. Elsewhere also, the the same word is translated thieves, but this word is also used of Barabbas. You could write down John chapter 18, verse 40. Barabbas is called this same thing. Thievery, robbing, was not punishable as a capital offense. You would not be put to death for stealing something. You might have your hand cut off or, or something like that, but you wouldn't be put to death. It is used here and other places of being a rebel. Going against the state. Perhaps these worked with Barabbas and they find themselves crucified, which was a capital offense. They are being crucified with Jesus and they insulted him with the same thing. Yeah, if you're the Messiah, we're all about political revolution. Do something. Oh, that's right, you can't. You're just like us. You're condemned. But thankfully we know, I think it's from Gospel of John, that one of these would repent and say, Lord, remember me. Remember me. And what was Jesus' response? Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus, the King of the Jews, is mocked. Verses 45 to 46, how Jesus, the king of the Jews, suffers and dies. Verses 45 to 46. Let's consider the first part. Verse 45. We have in the scripture here uh, how they kept time. The first hour was 6 a.m. The third hour was 9 a.m. The sixth hour is 12 p.m., 12 noon. The ninth hour would be 3 p.m., so that helps you Understand where you're at in the time of day. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. I'll stop there. So from noon to three, God caused that land, that area, to be enveloped in darkness. And almost always in Scripture, darkness is never a good feeling kind of experience. Jesus is bearing sin. He who knew no sin has become sin for us. He's being condemned. And he felt that excruciating pain, that condemnation. And he cries out, expressing that pain. And he also cries out his entire trust in the Lord with this quote from Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a psalm of trust, Psalm 22. And Jesus quotes the first part of it, pointing to the entire psalm. That God does not forsake those who are faithful. When you want to remember the fact that the Lord loves you and cares for you, sometimes you might quote or think of Psalm 23, verse 1. And how does that begin? The Lord is my shepherd. And your mind goes to the other things. That's what's going on here with Jesus quoting Psalm 22.1. What did not happen is there was no division between the Father and the Son. As if they were separated. That is an impossibility. Because God necessarily, eternally, is a triune God. He is always the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. For the Son to be dismissed from the Trinity for just a few hours or even a day or two would mean he is not the true God because God is essentially, necessarily, always three persons and one God. It wasn't a figurative type of separation. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Why have you forsaken me? Some of you might know some hymns or songs based on this. God is estranged from God or God dying are not good statements. So I'm taking a little bit of extra time here. What was going on? He is expressing his profound suffering and he is also expressing his profound trust. Hold your place here. Let's go to Psalm 22. You'll see this. You will see this. This is what Jesus is, what's going through his mind. And what a lesson for you and I to learn from. Hide God's word in, his, in your heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? So that I will not sin against you. I hide your word in my heart so that when I go through hard times, first thing my mind does is go to the Lord and think on his promises. Think of what he said. Trust in him and rely on him. And that's what Jesus does here. I'm going to read the whole psalm. There's some key points to recognize. 
And it will help you understand what Jesus was doing here by quoting it. And it will help you, I hope, encourage you. Psalm 22 is a psalm of crying to the God of Israel for help and deliverance. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, but I am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our, tr- our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. Note this, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Does this sound familiar? When Jesus was hearing the rebukes and the reviling of those people, his mind went to scripture And he knew what was happening. Verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Look at this. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. He's trusting in the Lord. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. He's describing his enemies here. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaw, and you brought me to the dust of death. Jesus was suffering physically in the same way. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Look at the first two words of verse 19. His trust. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. He's recognizing God will help him through that trial. And Jesus knew on the cross that the Lord would raise him from the dead. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. 
my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Do you see the change in emotion from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm? Lord, I'm suffering. It seems like you're far off. I'm condemned and I'm alone, but I will trust you. This is all that's happening. People are wagging their tail, their, their, their tongues at me. They're rejecting. They're making fun of me. I'm feeling great suffering, but I will trust in you. That's what Jesus is expressing here. Pick up now back to Matthew 27, verse 47. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. Well, some heard Jesus say this, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and they thought, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Elijah's going to help. So a soldier went to give him this drink, and the people said, let him alone. No, don't do that. Let's just see what will happen. Let's see if Elijah. Do you think they're really serious? No. They're continuing the mocking of Jesus Christ, the King of Israel on the cross. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He did have some of that drink, refreshed by that. Remember, his mouth would have been very dry by this point. And he makes his final words before he died. John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. In Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Verses 51 to 53, some results from Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I'll stop there. Many of you have asked me, are we going to have a new chalkboard in our new building? Maybe we should buy one. We are not having a chalkboard in our new building. And so I am going to take this one last opportunity today (laughs) to use the chalkboard. In the tabernacle and the temple, you had this main area where any Jew could enter. Then you have the tabernacle itself. There was a a gate here. This veil is the one that's being talked about right there. Here is, well, just to abbreviate, is the Holy of Holies, the HH. The Holy of Holies. Only Jews could come in here. Only priests could really be here. They could go through here at any time, pretty much. But this... 
once a year, the Day of Atonement. And only the high priests could enter into that Holy of Holies there. And what do we read happened after Jesus said, I commit my spirit into your hands. And Jesus voluntarily gave his life. We read the veil of the temple was torn. Well, if you want to, you have this vertical hanging uh, veil. How would you tear it? You're going to get a ladder, risk yourself breaking your neck and go up to the top. No, where are you going to start? You start at the bottom, but this is not how it happened. It started from the top to the bottom, and what does that show us? This is something God did. Hold your place here. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. What's the significance of this? Of that veil, where only the Jewish high priest could go once a year into the very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was. What's the significance of the Lord rending that veil in two? Hebrews 10, verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the holiest by the blood of the violent, sacrificial death of Jesus. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. By Jesus being the sacrifice for sin, the once for all sacrifice that would forever pay the price of all sin, past, present, and future. It did away with that. So now, every believer in Christ can go directly into God's presence, Jew or Gentile, not once a year, but Anytime. Back to Matthew chapter 27. We stopped in the middle of verse 51. The first result was this veil being torn in two from top to bottom. And there's a second result of saints in their graves. Verse 51 down to 53. The earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The saints in their graves. Two things happened here. The first happened at Jesus' death. The first thing that happened was this earthquake that caused the graves of some old saints who had been dead and buried for time they, that caused that earthquake, the earthquake caused those graves to open. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was at his resurrection that we just read here in verse 53. You have these open graves. And at his resurrection, just three days later, those saints rose from the dead. They went 
through Jerusalem, appearing to many. Could you imagine that? We're not told what happened to these individuals. have to leave it there. But this is something that happened as a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. Lastly, some responses to Jesus' death and then his burial. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. What does this mean? What's happening here? Ultimately, we don't know once and for all. As pagans, they use this expression, Son of God, for many of their gods. And they could have met, wow, this is one of the pagan gods of the pantheon. However, these are Roman soldiers in what country? Israel, where they've heard They've been exposed to some biblical truth. They just saw amazing things happen. Perhaps it was also a soldier or two. This truly was the Messiah. That's church tradition where they believe they were actually saved. We don't ultimately know. There's many women, verse 55, who gathered watching from afar Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And then Jesus is buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a disciple of Jesus. The other gospels give more uh, detail about what's happening here. But he makes it very clear, makes it very clear, Jesus is dead. The body of Jesus, verse 58. Verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And the two Marys were there also. Why did this happen? The Gospels tell us what happened. We also have a lot of teaching there. But this is where especially the epistles are helpful in understanding why did this happen. Why did this happen? We have to go back to eternity past to begin to answer that question. In eternity past, God saw all humanity. And God saw all humanity as what in relation to him? Some righteous and some Maybe in the middle and some real sinners. Remember what Romans 3.23 says? All have sinned. God saw all humanity before the beginning. And he knew there would all be sinners. And so what do sinners against God deserve? I mean, God is holy. He's absolutely righteous. Sinners deserve judgment. The wages of sin, it's death. They're guilty. They're condemned. They deserve his wrath. They are his enemies. But we also know from Scripture 
that God loved the world. Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy 1 and several others, God chose to save some. He will save some. How many deserve his salvation? None. How's God going to do that? Because he can't just sweep their sin under the rug. He can't pretend it never happened. How will their sin be atoned for? Be paid for? How will the enmity, the fact that they are his enemy and he is their enemy, it goes both ways. How will they be reconciled? How will that price be paid? How will that condemnation the guilt be done away with. And so we read in 1 Peter about the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. This has always been God's plan. Why did this happen? It's always been God's plan. And so you can read about it in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53. You read... Peter's preaching about this in Acts 2, in Acts chapter 4. Guilt has to be removed and it must be forgiven. And I can't do it myself because I'm guilty. My hands are filthy. Does this bring back any memories from Isaiah 53? All we like sheep have gone astray. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Dirty hands can't make clean garments. Somebody has to do it for me. An eternal son took on human flesh to be God and perfect man. And he offered himself as this sacrifice to pay my guilt. What about the price of sin? The wages of sin is death. Jesus died on the cross. Life had to be given. What about God's wrath? Remember? God's wrath. I deserve God's wrath. Jesus dying on the cross experiencing the the punishment. Do you remember Jesus' quoting of Psalm 22, 1? His expression of that suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the wrath my sin deserved. God's wrath. That is what propitiation means. The wrath that I deserved, it's been taken by Christ. My guilt, the price of my sin, God's wrath that I deserved, and the fact that I and God were enemies as an unbeliever, we have been reconciled now. I call him my father. He adopts me as his son. Has been has, has happened because of Christ's death on the cross. That's why it happened. At the cross. Jesus voluntarily took the sinner's place and suffered the punishment of their sin. 
That's what happened, Christian. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He took your place, Christian, voluntarily. I must do the will of my Father. And Christ's death was a once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice. What does this mean for everyone here right now? There are only two kinds of people in this room. You are either a believer, you've trusted in Christ, you're a Christian, your sins are washed away, or you're an unbeliever. And there's all kinds of grades of unbelievers, we could say it in one sense. You could have the, the, really, the really bad unbeliever, the, the Hitlers, as it were. You could have the so-so unbelievers that not really bad, not really good, haven't really done anything really bad. And then you could have the really spiritual, really religious unbelievers. I mean, when you come to worship, your heart's in it. You do all kinds of good things. But you're thinking, that's what is going to get me into heaven. That's why God accepts me, because of my religiousness. Or I'm born into a Christian family. Whatever it might be. Genuine religious feelings... I mean, you're really into it and your good works, they cannot take away guilt. Never will. Can never fully pay for sin. It will never, never turn God's wrath away from you. It will never make things right and reconcile you to a holy God. Never. There's only one way to God the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. And he opened that way through his death. Depending on anyone or anything else, it's guaranteed to fail. You have to rely on Christ. If this is you this morning, why are you waiting? Why are you playing games with the Lord? Why are you dishonoring Christ? Thumbing your nose at Christ's sacrifice and thinking that your good works are enough, and Jesus, it's a nice little tack on. Little difference from those who mocked him. Stop the foolishness and trust in the Lord and rely on him. And the promise is clear. All who believe in him have eternal life. And your sins are washed away and you are his son and daughter, and you are justified. The guilt's removed, and righteousness is in your account now. The other kind of person here right now is a Christian. You are a genuine believer, a son of God, son or daughter of the Lord. What did the Lord Jesus Christ do with the, the guilt, the price, the judgments, and the result of your sin? All your sin. Did he leave? Did he do most of it? Did he do seven eighths of it? 99 out of a hundredths of it? He took care of how much of it? All of it. All of it. Does that mean, hey, you can go sin willy nilly however you want, whenever you want? No. If that's your attitude, you better recheck who you're relying on for salvation because a genuine believer won't do that. 
a genuine believer, his heart pains when his sin is made aware of to him. Should you feel guilty for your sin, Christian? Well, there's a, a, a right sense of guilt and sorrow. But you don't bear the guilt that Jesus bore. How should you respond if you sin? 1 John 1, 9. Repent of it, confess it, and you know he forgives us our sin. He cleanses us from all. Not 99% you have to do the other 1%. All of it. Continually confess your sin, Christian. Continually trust in Christ. And one last thing. This is our message. This has always been and must always be our message. We proclaim a crucified Christ. But we will also, we also proclaim a risen Christ. We'll focus on that next week. We proclaim a crucified Christ, a risen Christ, and a Christ who is coming again. Let's pray.